Welcome to the Crack Factory, where you can have your weekly spicy doses of crack cocaine with the Adam Smith Institute. I mean, the Pin Factory. I definitely meant the Pin Factory. Well, I mean, to be fair, listening to the Pin Factory is the crack cocaine of the masses. It is basically the crack of podcasts, yeah. The, the content is just so damn good. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, I'm the head of research at EASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and John McDonald, our head of government affairs. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing COVID failures, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and bailout Britain. A scathing new report from the Parliament's Health and Science Committees has concluded that the UK's response to COVID is one of the country's worst public health responses in history. Uh, I guess, start off, what are some of the key failures that have been identified in this report? What are the sort of thing? and I'm sure we've talked about them a lot on the podcast before, but for the benefit of first-time listeners and uh, <laughs> this report, what's the, uh, the key things that we've really screwed up on, Matthew? Look, in a sense, this report is is rehashing a lot of what we already knew, uh, it, but from, I guess, an, an authority of source um, and also in, in one place. So it is it is more or less the standard failures we, we already were aware of. We, we knew the government failed on borders because um, there was the understanding that you shouldn't close your borders. We know they were relatively late to lockdown because if you're going to lock down, you may as well do it um, yesterday rather than tomorrow to stop the, the spread of cases. Um, we know that there were issues in test and trace, familiar issues in their initial approach to testing was was far too small and there was no initial plan to scale up testing. Uh, we know about the failure with respect to the NHS discharging patients to care homes untested with the virus and, and we think spreading the virus um, to those who are most vulnerable. Uh, What's quite interesting, though, in this report, and I think it's done quite well, is is highlighting some of the the issues with the interactions between um, policy and science. And does I, I get the sense from this, and, and Tom Shivers had a very good article about this. Basically, the UK acted too smart by half with respect to COVID. Um, we we thought we could, um, in a in a complex social situation, in in the context of a new virus, with us not really actually understanding how well it spread, since we, we thought it spread by fomites, we thought it spread on surfaces, didn't really, it was actually airborne. With so little knowledge about the virus, the scientists had a, had a calm sense of confidence. They had a playbook they thought they could follow. Part of this was the, the flu playbook. But even then, they thought that they could manage the virus at such a rate and, and make sure it spreads at, at such a slow rate as to not overwhelm the healthcare system. Turns out it was already massively spreading by the time um, they started making those murmurs at the start of March, um, partly because we weren't doing all the testing and, and PHE had a, a complete and total failure there. So, so I think thinking about how we make decisions in the context of uncertainty is, is what I see to be as a, as a main takeaway from this report and, and the real challenge going forward. One of the things that, that kind of interested me about it is that there didn't seem to be much individual blame assigned. And perhaps that's, that's unsurprising to a certain extent. One of the ministers leading it, um, Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary and of course you know you can make arguments about well you know under his uh, leadership shouldn't have we been better prepared at his sort of time and things like that do you think that it is kind of useful to have sort of individuals to point the finger at because it seems like from what you were saying there and I, and I agree with with the vast majority of it that actually this is more of a kind of a processes thing and it's a, a general failure of government culture being too smart by half as you say 
it, it's a failure of, of scientific culture or, or how scientists interact with government, maybe even the structures thereof. So SAGE was designed to give a, a consensus view to the government about the science. But of course, there is no the science. There is no consensus in science. It's science is a process with different, and it's supposed to have different opinions and, and, and different people contesting each other. But you, you, you had a failure to bring out what could be different opinions. And um, the classic idea in Israel is you have the 11th man. You, you always have someone in the room whose job it is to disagree with the, the consensus and fight back. And often that 11th man can actually be quite helpful because they end up persuading other people. Just somebody being the devil, the devil's advocate um, is necessary in, in the process. And it, it didn't seem like there was anyone who, who was fulfilling that role. So was was there a failure of individuals? Yes, I think there was. And I think there's a lot of individuals who made particularly bad, um, gave bad advice <clears throat> and then there were politicians who made bad decisions. Um, and I think we should, we should look at them, but it seems like it was more systematic. Um, than just one person failing. Uh, and just finally, before we, we move on to your thoughts, John, I'm sure you're very pleased to see the extremely uh, damning criticism of the government's actions on test and trace, Matthew, this being one of your key issues during the pandemic and one that you've spoke a lot about, um, MPs calling it slow, uncertain, chaotic, uh, and obviously the decision to halt mass testing in March 2020 was, uh, came under especially severe criticism despite the WHO recommending it as being extremely important at the time. Yeah, this, this was another role of the too smart by half. Uh, there's a lot of claims now that the reason why the government stopped testing was a capacity issue. And that was certainly part of the problem. There was a lack of capacity um, in, in Public Health England to, to do mass testing. But there was also no effort. There was no effort to ex- expand the capacity to um, involve the whole NHS network in February. That took well into March. And then no willingness to involve the private sector, no willingness to involve animal testing labs, uh, charity labs, university labs. So so not only was it a, a capacity issue, um, we have to be careful not to rewrite history here because it was quite clear. If you look at Jenny Harris and, and what she said, uh, so Jenny Harris was, was was the deputy chief medical officer in the in England at the time of the pandemic, and now she's heading up the, the UK's replacement for Public Health England. She was pretty clear at the start of March that there would be a point at which testing was no longer an appropriate intervention. And then when testing and community testing was ended, she said quite specifically, this was a strategic decision. It wasn't just about capacity. So it, it seems blatantly um, ridiculous and, and an absurd and, and a, a terrifying effort to rewrite history just to say it was about capacity. It was part of the strategy. It was part of the strategy to give up on mass testing because you were just going to let COVID spread through the community. That was a bad decision. It slowed down our access to information. It meant we couldn't um, reduce the spread of the virus earlier on. Uh, and it, it has had a whole bunch of, of cascading effects. And John, I don't know if you want to play the good cop to uh, Matthew's bad cop here, but the report <laughs> did highlight some of the, the very positive aspects of uh, the UK's COVID response as well, the uh, development and delivery of vaccines, um, but obviously very highly critical in other areas. Do you think that perhaps some of these MPs are being a little bit too too pessimistic in their analysis and their evaluation of how the UK responded? Of course, it's, you know, something that there should have been a lot of preparation for, but it was at the same time a kind of black swan event. Well, first of all, I wanted to come back in uh, on the idea of of blaming people uh, or singling out specific individuals, um, which I think, as Matt said, there are individuals who we could single out who could accept a lot of blame. But I think the danger with that in politics uh, is that you end up scapegoating them. And my concern there would be that you would sort of say, oh, X person 
should have made this decision that they didn't make and then you kind of sweep all the lessons under the rug by just pinning it to someone who who might not even be in government anymore um on the issue of the vaccine rollout uh i my concern is that <clears throat> we actually had like a, a fairly a fairly slow start and there was not an awful lot to be happy about in the in the sort of early stages it was only really in the middle <clears throat> when we started having uh like walk-in appointments etc that, that the vaccine rollout really started getting going and i i'm concerned that we're kind of taking our our foot off the pedal a bit now uh and that, and that there seem to be a lot of people sort of in the 16 to 25 uh or 24 age bracket who are catching covid now we're seeing case case numbers creep back up again um and so i don't think now is really the appropriate time to be patting ourselves on the back in that regard yeah one, one of the things that i kind of found interesting about the report is that it, it made and i think this is probably correct point that the uk does have some of in theory at least some of the best expertise anywhere in the world in terms of its public health system and it's got you know unlike many other countries that um that also face the pandemic it's got this sort of fairly open liberal and, and it's got we're, we're a democratic country and we should have these sort of mechanisms these feedback mechanisms and the ability to challenge some of the conclusions that you know uh, various scientific bodies come to uh, mp should be able to in theory scrutinize and, and reject at times um, advice that goes against uh, you know what seems to be pretty common sense interpretations of how to respond and yet in many many cases that didn't happen and it's amazing just how much for you know reading through some of this report you get this sense that it really is a cultural issue it, it's a kind of issue with a select a fairly large group of individuals you know um, mps and, and scientists rather than you know any sort of process thing being the most important thing it, it does just seem like a kind of group think as kind of set in and actually a lot of the time people just reluctant to go against what um a lot of the independent scientific advisory bodies were recommending simply because of this kind of you know it, it's the kind of trust in experts question at least a little bit i guess i, I think there's it's, it was quite interesting to watch how once it became what what the government said as an official proclamation and what the, the government scientific advisors were saying. It then also spread through to non-government advisors, generally mimicking what the government said. Um, and then also key media institutions, guys like the BBC, um, not particularly challenging the government um, or, or bringing on contrarian voices as much as might be needed. And I think that's something to think about is a way in which during a crisis, yes, it's important to report on the official view, but it's also important to, to get alternative views and alternative perspectives on the airways. And that is eventually what did happen with the government. There was an extraordinary amount of pressure, but that, that could have happened a few weeks earlier um, if there was more willingness to, to question um, the, the government and, and the government's scientific advice. And I guess the, the other question that came out of this is, is, thinking about whether the government got it right in terms of trying to move towards prioritizing the economy over health, because there was this, you know, ongoing argument for the whole of the, the pandemic that actually, you know, now is the time that we need to start worrying about the economy more. And some people took obviously more hardline views on that and, and suggested that we do that a lot earlier. Um, do you think that, you know, obviously hindsight being a wonderful thing that we got it about right in terms of starting to move towards, um, looking back at the, the economy is the most important thing here once the vaccine rollout was in full swing? I mean, from my perspective, the, the sort of prioritization of the economy 
uh, was was not handled particularly well before we had the vaccine. Um, but that was mostly in lieu of the fact that we always locked down much later than we should have done. Um, <clears throat> so we had that funny period, uh, sort of September, October, November, uh, where we were kind of playing around with the tier system. And then we went into lockdown just for November. And then we came out again for a little bit in December. And then we went to tier four. And then it was a full national lockdown. And it was that sort of stopping and starting and unfreezing and then freezing again that I think really did damage to the economy at that stage. Uh, after that, I think in the sort of post-vaccine rollout stages, I think we've, we've handled that fairly well in terms of the economy. One of the things that I, is a certain dark humor in it, and, it, and it's, it's not necessarily the funniest thing in the world, but it, it did make me kind of roll my eyes a little bit, is that the report looked at how, at least initially, and I remember this well, a lot of MPs basically saying, well, you know, we, we're not going to be able to suppress the virus. We're going to have to end up just doing test and trace, but even that's not going to work and, and we can't suppress it. And that thinking only really changed when it suddenly became clear that, oh, our precious NHS is under threat. That was like the key thing that I think in a lot of politicians minds can flick that switch and thought oh okay we do actually need to suppress the virus now because you know the nhs the nhs as opposed to you know people dying it was it was a very powerful political argument and and the the slogan that they reach between you know the likes of lee kane and and ben gurion at number 10 um the kind of social media and, and communications whizzes they they reached a slogan of um uh, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives in that order. So you're, you're effectively protecting the NHS comes first uh, before uh, you're saving lives. And that also had the unintentional consequence, of course. And, and this is where I think there's a bit of a false dichotomy when we talk about the, the sense between the health and the economy or even lives and livelihood, I don't think works particularly well because in, in a sense, they're, they're one and the same. Um, the economy is, is a representation of our general prosperity um, and our ability to pr- stop COVID um, was something that would, although reduce GDP, would increase our overall welfare because fewer people would die. So just saying GDP fell, well, yes, we did allow GDP to fall. We did um, want production to re- reduce over that period. And in a traditional economic sense, or a very narrow economic sense, you might think it's bad, well, production is reduced. But that's not all the economy is about. Um, it, it's about our general wealth and prosperity. So how you balance res- restrictions and compared to different costs and benefits, I think, is, is the real challenge here. But we have to remember they're both our lives and livelihoods. Our economic prosperity also, def- in the longer run, um, defines our, the, you know, how much money we can spend on the NHS, for example, or perhaps more directly just our, our general prosperity and, and welfare. So, so I think it, these decisions are very complex um, and I don't, the problem is in a sense, you, asking the government to balance these things in a sense is, is contradictory, um, or, or at least an impossible task. Like the, the, this is, as I was saying earlier, you know, the government's original plan was, well, they'd, you know, sequentially over, you know, a three to four week period, slowly start um, counseling um, mass events. And then a few weeks later, they'd shut down schools. And then a few weeks after that, they, they might reduce gatherings, or, you know, something like that. There's this idea that the, the, the mighty central planner, and if only we'd had a slightly better central planner um, doing all these things and making slightly better decisions, I think inevitably we've just got to accept the fact that central planning is extremely flawed. During a pandemic, it might be necessary, but it's inevitably going to be seriously flawed and full of mistakes. And we should generally avoid it um, if we can. Well, on that very uh, free market note, I think it's time to move on to our next section on new developments in the Northern Ireland Protocol negotiations. 
the UK and EU are back to the negotiating table after new proposals from both sides about how to fix the NI protocol. Look, John, I thought Brexit was was meant to be done by now. I thought we'd left the European Union. Uh, I thought we had our blue passports back. Uh, what's what's been going on in in Northern Ireland? Why are we talking about this issue again? Oh, I am so glad you asked, Matthew. Um, look, uh, the 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 point that was that was made in in the Politico article that we that we all read uh, was that it, it sort of it feels like Groundhog Day, but it, to me it feels like a Groundhog Day where we're stuck rewatching Groundhog Day. Um, I mean, I, I confess, <laughs> after so it's meta Groundhog. It, well, no, it really is. I mean, it's the same the same refrains over and over again. Oh, you know. Uh, we're, we're we're hearing positive noises, or you know, X is willing to compromise on Y, but this this thing's holding things up. Um, I mean, I, I confess, after after having had to read about Brexit every day during the general election, I've I've enjoyed not keeping too close an eye on on negotiations for now. But look, if, from my perspective, we're we're back to the the brinksmanship again um, with regards to sort of going back on on the Northern Ireland Protocol or, or triggering Article Sixteen. Uh, I think these are sort of harsh or, or aggressive or potentially even bad faith negotiating strategies, but but it's all been pretty par for the course so far. So the sort of pearl clutching that we that we always see when it comes to Brexit uh, is perhaps not justified at this point. Mm, yeah, you're getting a lot of passion. Everyone's everyone's yes. to some extent back in their their traditional um, corners on this debate. The Guardian is saying this is a complete disaster. The Telegraph's telling you this is a an excellent negotiating strategy. Exactly what we we need to do. Um, as you'd expect. Going to kind of the policy detail, that there, there does seem to be some genuine issues with respect to Northern Ireland Protocol. And you could argue that potentially they, they should have never cited it in the first place because what it, what it did was create a customs border within a country, uh, which from a sovereignty perspective is unacceptable. Um, the, the fact that you have EU, EU laws and regulations that, that Northern Irelanders have no say in creating um, applied in Northern Ireland, and then the UK has separate laws and regulations, and the EU is, is creating friction um, with respect to paperwork, with, with respect to um, what, what you're in practice then able to import just because it's very expensive to, to send things from GBA to Northern Ireland, so you can't access a lot of goods in Northern Ireland. Now, of course, there's the historical troubles, there's um, a lot of uh, tensions and, and between um, different the, the, you know, different groups within Northern Ireland, and, and the, whilst during a lot of the Brexit negotiations, we we, we talked a lot about the kind of um, p- p- perspective of, of Irish nationalism um, and issues that could come on the border if if the, they were potentially some kind of border between um, North and South. We didn't speak as anywhere near as much about the unionist tensions um, and and the unionist side and and their wishes and, and demands and the fact that they're pretty miffed off about the fact that they feel like they've been cut off from from Great Britain, from the country in which they, they consider themselves to be to be part of and, and want to continue being part of. Um, is this in some, some sense, Daniel, kind of an irresolvable problem um, between the between the two sides? Or do you think we're, we're on our way um, to some kind of better deal, some kind of magical agreement where everyone's happy? I don't think it, we can ever make both sides entirely happy, but it does seem like this latest kind of round of negotiations has actually produced some fruit. One of the key things that consistently has been bugging the UK side of the negotiations is this idea of the European Court of Justice as being the the final arbiter of the protocol and you know the ECJ basically being the body that has the ultimate say over the movement of sausages and lorries between Liverpool and Northern Ireland but it does seem like at least the EU has recognized that the current situation is is not 
um, is not appropriate, even if you know that goes back on some of their their previous kind of arguments that oh these issues are just you know that they're not credible that that they're not real. Um, and the specifics of this is has got precedent in in the relationship between the EU and Switzerland. It seems like the the EU is happy to at least propose that there should be some sort of involvement um, of of Britain in kind of arbitrating some of these decisions what really I, I think gets me and and I'm not actually someone who is as sympathetic towards this kind of oh well you know we, we signed the agreement but we never we always knew we were never gonna honor it like even the if Dominic that's Cummings true, excuse <laughs> yeah exactly the, the the Cummings excuse and just ditch ditch the bits that we don't like you know you, you can present it as this kind of oh we're, we're just being like Machiavellianism and it's just you know tough talk and actually it's it's what we really need to get Brexit done things like that there's a certain amount of merit in that argument my problem is that you don't say that you definitely shouldn't say that when you're still in the middle of negotiations um you know re- regardless of the morality of it or like you know what what it says and, and what precedent it yeah. sets for if, if you say you're willing to break a deal that you've just signed why should they negotiate with you in good faith about the next deal yeah exactly even if you are willing to to break that deal just don't say it that seems i mean i i guess that you know cummings is kind of off the hook in some respects now that he's no longer involved and the best Cummings could say though is Boris was actually too dumb to realize any of this was going on so it was his Machiavellian plan it just wasn't shared with, with <laughs> Boris which, yeah, which that... might work as an excuse I guess I suppose yeah I I, I guess it, it's never gonna it, it's not gonna translate into that though even if you know Cummings kind of makes that argument the fact is mm-hmm. that for the EU and for the vast majority of people in the world who are interested in in this and, and have interests in this they're going to look at it and they're going to see oh Boris Johnson uh, willingly is fine with breaking his international agreements um, and that damages our reputation it damages our soft power we've already kind of seen that mode of behavior with the proroguing of parliament back in 2019 mm. so to, to me it's kind of I'm already not not to say that it's justified or unjustified. It's just that we're already kind of used to it. Like it's not. It's. Well, I mean, it's. It seems like it, it, in the sense of it, it's kind of like a madman strategy, which is to yeah. say if you've got to be a little bit unpredictable in these negotiations. I think there's a pretty strong argument though. It's working um, for David Frost. So David Frost went off and gave this speech in Lisbon where he said we want closer relations with the EU. But in order to get those close relations, we really need to sort out this Northern Ireland issue. You know, we're, we're broadly aligned on, on international relations, but we've got this issue and let's fix it. Um, and he made some bright grand demands about changing the agreement. The EU has come back, though, um, and this is where I see actually what David Frost is doing is, is quite intelligent and quite um, strategically capable, which is you're pulling out the Overton window by saying we're, we're willing to trigger Article 16, we're, we're willing to go to this extreme. It, it forces the EU a little bit more in your direction. So the EU has come out and, and by, by all reports, offered things that they've never previously offered, things they didn't offer the UK when they were lightly, lightly negotiating with Theresa May, things about um, compromising to reduce SBS checks, allowing potentially even allowing the UK to provide medicines in Northern Ireland, which they currently can't do because only EU medicines can be provided in Northern Ireland. So it, it seems like, yes, it's a bit of bastardry um, with respect to negotiations, but it, it's, a, it's a, an effective strategy nevertheless uh, with the EU because the EU says we've got all these red lines, but ultimately the red lines are, are, are quickly scratched away 
if, if under enough pressure and if, if the alternative is worse. So therefore, you have to keep these threats on the table. You have to say you're willing to, to go Article 16. You have to say you're willing to give up on the deal. Admittedly, it doesn't seem like they're actually, what they're doing is trying to renegotiate a deal they've signed. And you can say, well, it's a bit soon to renegotiate it. But they can make a, a reasonable argument that the deal isn't working. And then there is a mechanism within the deal. There is Article 16. It, it's not like you might disagree about whether or not it is appropriate time to trigger that, that exit clause, but it doesn't seem like the deal is irrevocable um, or, or that they're doing anything that's specifically illegal under international law. They're just, they're just playing some, some games, aren't they, potentially, John? Well, I mean, I was going to ask you if you think if there's a risk of overcommitting to your own strategy in that regard, right? Is that How many times can this work? <laughs> well, we've seen the EU you know, commit to things or suggest that they're willing to do things that they've never said before, right? Um, and part of the reason that we can identify that they've said that is because David Frost is willing to push things quite far and, and say that he's willing to do things that perhaps we haven't said that we've been willing to do uh, in, in sort of more reasonable uh, negotiating teams in the past. Um, but my concern is that we're sort of, we run the risk of having the perfect be the enemy of the good in this case. Uh, and that and is there not a problem with pushing the EU too far and having them actually take things off the table again if we carry on insisting that, I, I think I read that the sort of 80, 80% uh, or 80% of checks on goods in between UK and Northern Ireland would, would, would not have to be checked. I guess um, it depends on what happens next, right? Like there, there's certainly a worry, as you say, that, well, now, now um, Lord Frost has, has sh- shot his shot and uh, there's not much else in that he can actually do now if um, the EU turns around and, and says, oh, actually, we're, we're not going to go through with this or if, you know, there's a further UK demand that, that becomes extremely important but i think if, if you look at like the, the detail of the stuff that is still being negotiated then the only real thing that is still stands out as as a uk objective that is not currently going to be met it seems is the ccj jurisdiction mm. issue and i think that was always going to be a, a bit of a punt to to really get over that and actually the fact that there has been some even some movement on that with you know a potential joint panel of, of uk judges with um with the ecj uh, administering or looking over things even if the ecj is yeah. the final arbiter to me is is actually probably the best we're going to get um and so i'm i would be worried that uh, we don't have anything left in the, the negotiating tank if we weren't mm. at the stage that it seems like we're at now obviously you know things still need to be fleshed out and and looked over and stuff but i'm i'm not concerned given that it does seem like there has been a very significant movement from the eu side and about as significant as one could really hope or expect having said that though i remember again when we were sort of having these similar sorts of discussions two years ago what would happen is a side would would propose something uh or at least they would package something with a with a big red line in it with lots of nice stuff around it. So you'd have a situation which we have here and which for the UK, having ECJ jurisdiction over all its decisions is is an absolute, you know, an absolute no. But the EU then gets to say, oh, but look, we're trying to compromise in all these other areas. It's just you being difficult on this one issue, which they, they probably know full well is one of the main issues that the UK doesn't want to compromise on. It seems like a principal issue with the ECJ to some extent, because we don't know if there's any current issues that are about to go before the ECJ, although there's also a longer term strategic question about, well, if you give the ECJ this power, is it going to end up making some questionable rulings? I do get the sense, though, that there will be a compromise reach on this. There, there was already a compromise reach in respect 
to the broader Brexit deal about ECJ having an advisory role about EU law, but but there's still being a separate mechanism. There's already other mechanisms to do with um, how the EU deals with Switzerland. I mean, I, the, the whole irony out of all this is is um, the EU said no special deal for the UK, no bespoke deal, um, it, nothing, nothing, you know, unique. Um, of course, that doesn't that hasn't sustained. It, it wasn't going to be realistic. The, the EU is going to need special arrangements with respect to the UK, both because the UK is its, it's kind of closest and, and, and largest trading partner, like where they're closest and largest trading partner, um, as well as the fact that you have the Northern Ireland question, which also means you need special arrangements. It's, it's you know, you, you existing modes of, of operation. Um, I do require it. And the, and the EU already does this with various neighbours. Its relationship with Norway is, is different to its relationship with, with Switzerland, it's different to its relationship with the, the USA or whatever. It's, the, the EU does all sorts of different arrangements as, as is necessary. So this whole sense, and, and I remember someone describing this to me, someone in Australia who was looking from afar and they said, well, you know, the difference, of course, is the EU is a rules-based institution and, you know, they've got to, they've got to do, um, follow their rules. I think it's all, that's all nonsense. The, you know, the rules are always bendable. They're always changeable. It's always flexible. Um, and they just try not to do it, which is fair enough. That's how, that's how negotiating works. You you try to keep to your principles and, and you, you have your red lines and you don't want to cross, but sometimes um, you, you do have to negotiate and, and compromise. And that's what we're going to get to here. Energy intensive industries, including steel, chemical and ceramics businesses, are demanding a taxpayer bailout in response to soaring energy prices. Sounds like they're likely to get it within the next few days as well. Uh, Going to you first, John, do you think that uh, bailout in order to deal with the rising cost of wholesale gas and if you're an industry or in position, you use a lot of that gas or a lot of that energy. Do you think that that's a justified response from the government? Do you think it's necessary to keep the wheels of the economy turning? Uh, well, I mean, we, we do seem to be hurtling ever closer to a command and control style economy. I mean, it, it's news to no one, but the government's main policy tool these days seems to be spend and tax. Uh, in the case of bailing out energy companies, uh, it's difficult to say. It looks like uh, there was a failure to prepare. There are indications uh, that, that an energy crisis could be around the corner, given much lower reserves <clears throat> than usual uh, in Europe. And there were coal and gas shortages in China and India. Uh, and so far, the government seems to have sat on its hands in terms of preparing uh, for a potential crisis coming around the corner. And so it, it, it seems that what's happened is a failure to prepare has led to a scenario in which we have to prepare to fail, and that is a scenario in which the government has to bail our energy companies. Um, you could make the argument that those companies should have put better contingencies in place for for rises in, in energy prices, um, and that their sort of measure of last resort should be having, you know, perhaps like greater cash reserves rather than spending money on 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 lobbying firms to, to go to the government and ask for more money. Right. And I think that's this gets to the heart of the the issue that, you know, free marketers have always had with bailouts. It's not just a kind of case of picking winners or, or losers, although that does seem to be the case with talk of some of the criteria for bailouts potentially being whether companies paid bonuses or dividends, which I just find absolutely ridiculous you know uh, how you manage your your corporate structure and how you incentivize performance having an impact on whether the government forks out a ton of taxpayer cash to you but it's the moral hazard element of this which is that you're and you're right john you know the company sitting there thinking right i I could spend uh x amount of of my 
money you know on invest that money in potentially preparing contingencies or i could invest it in a very slick pr department that's able to lobby the government successfully for what's ultimately uh us three's money um not just us threes i should add uh it it seems like that that's exactly what this is going to do and you know clearly i think a lot of companies kind of expected this um and that's something that that should be i think surprising under you know uh a nominally a conservative centre-right government. But it's not surprising, is it, Matthew? It's something that seems to be, it seems as though COVID has potentially reset some of our expectations for what the state is responsible for in emergency situations. And we've kind of hit a new normal here, and not a good new normal. Yeah, I had this infuriating moment uh, listening um, to the BBC, as it as might not surprise you. Very biased. Very biased. bias. Well, I don't think this was biased. I just thought this was just kind of poor interviewing. In, in, so it was an interview with um, the, the head of the Energy Intensive Users Group, which is the umbrella group for, for those, those kind of um, companies, you know, steel or concrete or whatever else, that, that use up a lot of energy. And effectively, it was the most blatant rent-seeking I had heard in my life. It was basically, <laughs> give me, give me taxpayer funds. Oh, we deserve it. We're great. Um, give me, give me. And the, the justification that was used by, um, or at least one of the justifications used by was, well, as COVID showed, the government should step in during emergencies to help businesses. And I just kind of scratched my head there and said, well, no, like this is not the same as COVID. This is not a comparable situation. COVID was a very specific case where the government required businesses to shut down. Um, in the process, they also provided support to ensure the links between employees and employers uh, were sustained during the crisis so the economy could quickly bounce back. That is not a normal recession or that is not a normal kind of crisis of, of or energy price increase um during a normal time you actually don't want the government to intervene you, you actually and i and you know this is this is tough for the government to accept you have to let businesses fail um you, not every business can su- succeed and if a business can't be profitable on its own two feet um it shouldn't receive taxpayer money to keep it alive that that's just fundamentally what, what McConnell might call a, a deadweight loss it means every, every other taxpayer is subsidizing keeping an industry alive that people aren't willing to pay for the product at which it, it costs to produce um, and and that means that resources are misallocated in the economy it means we're producing things we don't necessarily need or should produce and we can't produce competitively at a price and perhaps yes we should import those those goods or we should we should use them get them from somewhere else um, instead of expecting taxpayers to bail them out is an energy sp- spike in price is something unprecedented or unexpected well the fact that this the the energy intensive users already have a group already have a set of lobbyists they know energy prices are a key cost input to them uh they know it can increase um if they're unable to hedge against the potential increase that is going to come as a result of the government's policies in other respects you, i think the strongest argument you could make was well the government's intervened so much in the energy markets and that's the reason for all this mess to some extent that's true but some extent it's just global gas prices have gone up um and and the uk is is dependent on gas quite a lot because we, we need that as a backup um, power source when when the wind's not blowing and the sun isn't shining. So as a result of the, the nature of the market, um, yes, prices have gone up. And that's something I think the, the users of that energy as a signal need to accept. So they need to modify their production as a result, or if they can't afford the cost of the energy, um, then, then they should perhaps um, reconsider their business model. So we, we talked a little bit about the, the economics side of this. The political side also, though, seems quite interesting in that there seems to be a really big uh, internal fight amongst government about 
this sort of thing. Uh, there's a fight specifically between the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, and the chancellor, Rishi Sunak. John, what have you kind of seen and heard about what's going on here? The classic treasury versus the world um, issue. Ah, I mean, I, I was in Port Colors House yesterday and I did hear <clears throat> murmurings uh, that there were tensions between the uh, the Chancellor and, and Kwasi Kwarteng. Um, from what I understand, I think Rishi's probably a little fed up of being a Chancellor who, who didn't particularly want to do tax and spend, uh, but who ends up in scenarios where that's what the government is asking him to do again and again and again. Um, <clears throat> So I think you know I don't I don't want to go into the sort of petty personal politics too much, um, but I think there is a little bit of tension there over kind of him being lobbied uh, to to take a sort of a pro bailout stance. Yeah, I, I actually got a, a slightly different impression, but this was I mean it, you know I wasn't in Port Colour House. This was from reading uh, newspapers, and we of course know that you can't trust the papers. But my my impression, nonetheless, that I got was in in fact that. The Chancellor is not actually that bothered about the question of, of whether we should do bailouts or not, or he, he seems to be broadly on board with the idea, but it's more that the, the government basically went over the Treasury's head here, um, and the Treasury likes to be the, the ones that are told first and that are consulted first. There was a quite bizarre moment over the weekend and into Monday where Kwasi Kwarteng was doing the, the, the morning rounds. And then there was a, a quote from a Treasury source saying, geez, once again, Kwasi has announced things that haven't been agreed. And it, it, I think that's right. There was a sense that the, that the core issue was that Kwasi was going out and jumping ahead of the, the, the Chancellor and, in fact, hadn't actually spoken to the Chancellor formally about this or put forward the proposals, which seemed quite bizarre. I, I find this extremely weird and i think we should find this extremely weird that you have basically one part of the government really sniping at a cabinet uh, minister in another part of the government um seems truly bizarre and dysfunctional and the fact they can't sort this out seems like quite a bizarre issue to me i don't know whether or not you know rishi and and the the, the treasury are a little bit more skeptical of give, skeptical giving out the money I, I would hope they they would be and i think for good reason they need to be because otherwise it's just, these amounts are never going to end and you're going to see the government repeatedly being called on to bail people out. So I hope there is some pushback, although it does seem like Boris has intervened and there's going to be some special loan scheme um, for, for these companies. Yeah, the, the cynic in me is, is pretty convinced that there's not a significant opposition to this. I mean, you know, already the, the kind of emergency subsidies to CO2 companies that have been given out, uh, Treasury seemed fairly happy with that. Uh, this this sort of situation doesn't seem that much different. Um, arguably, there's a bit more of a, a kind of strategic industry argument for the the CO2, but not significantly. I mean, we're still, you know, steel is often talked about in the same sort of terms. So I, I would be surprised, and, and I think that that kind of you know quite conveniently plays in towards my general uh, cynicism towards the the current government as actually. You know, they're not the sort where there's going to be that much serious opposition to, to bailouts. I mean, they're the Conservatives, after all. You know, why on earth would they oppose like, the greater state control of the economy, picking winners and losers and moral hazards? It's not like there's any sort of, you know, good free market reasons for, for doing so. I, I think we talked about the, the kind of the economics for the firms involved themselves. How about the consumer aspect of this, right? Like in the short term, you presume that as a consumer, you hear that, um, a certain company that you, you buy products from or, or services from is going to be bailed out. That's a good thing. Um, is that 
the end of the analysis or is there a kind of a long-term issue and worry for consumers here as well? You look, I don't think this is great news for consumers. Consumers are also taxpayers and they're going to be paying for these industries' bailouts. Um, I mean, down the line, you could argue, well, the, the input costs of, of some goods that or, or services that, that we all use will be slightly, ever so slightly lower um, because of this subsidy. But I, I don't think consumers are going to see much of that because it, the, these are really primary inputs um, to business uses. So it's the, the marginal impact there is going to be quite minimal. And I think the broader concern for consumers should be about taxpayer money um, and economic productivity that are, that are not helped by bailouts um, and, and should be worried about the government intervening in this way. Well, I think on that uh, depressing note that we're all going to have to pay some more taxes and not really get much benefit out of it, it's probably time to end this uh, this episode of Pin Factory podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you like what you heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. My name is Daniel Pryor. I'm the head of programs at the Adam Smith Institute, joined by my ever excellent co-host, Matthew Lesh, our head of research and our wonderful head of government affairs, John McDonald. We will see you next week for more banter analysis. Mm -hmm.